is the proud attribution of salvation to yourself while ignoring the problem of our shared, that is our corporate guilt. Someone asked me last week, when you say corporate guilt, do you mean original sin? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. And I'm trying to teach what that means because that's what Paul is focused on in his first kind of chapter of Romans. Remember, the chapters are not really where the thematic breaks are. They're just a certain amount of space. And some monks in the Middle Ages put them there and thank God for it because it makes it easy to find things. But it doesn't always mean it's the end of the idea. So from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20 is one chapter. And the premise of this chapter is to convince primarily Jewish Christians that they too are sinners. And you see this if you go all the way to the very end of this section. So to understand chapter 2, unfortunately, we have to look at chapter 3 for just a brief moment. In your pew Bible, chapter 2 and 3 will be on page 940. And of course, this new series on the book of Romans is a great time to begin bringing your own Bible to church so you can start getting used to using it. The whole reason we're doing how to read the Bible is because one of the major reasons for the collapse of America as we know it is that all the Christians in America stopped reading their Bibles and started watching TV. I don't mean to condemn TV outright, although sometimes personally I kind of do, but honestly, you can watch TV and be a Christian. But if you watch more TV than you read your Bible for 40 years, it has an effect. And it certainly has an effect on our children. So we're doing these How to Read the Bible series because we want to take our lives back from these stories taught by unbelievers whose consciences are seared, who don't mind lying to you to your face in order to take advantage of you because they are in fact evil men. Now, again, Romans 2 is going to teach us that not only are there evil men, but we are all evil men. This is why when you go to a car dealership, you know they're going to try to get as much money out of you as possible. Why? Because they're just like you. And that's the point of Romans 2. Even though you're saved, even though you know Jesus, especially because you know Jesus, the God of grace, don't forget what he saved you from and act as if it's about you. Hmm? So, again, the whole section is moving towards chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And so I want to read that first so we don't lose sight of where it's going. Okay? That says... Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, comes knowledge of sin. 
it is imperative that we remember that no human being by works of the law, that is by what you do, will be saved in God's sight when we're looking at chapter 2 when he's going to talk about how some human beings will be saved by works. What does that mean when he has two sentences that say the exact opposite thing? Well, I maybe misspoke. It doesn't say some human beings will be saved by works. It says anyone who keeps the law perfectly will be justified. So the question is, who's that? And he's trying to convince the Jewish Christians and Jewish unbelievers that are living in Rome, well, that's not you. You don't keep the law perfectly. And that's what this whole chapter that we're really going to look at today is going to try to say to you. You don't keep the law perfectly. That's why it's going to feel like it accuses you. That's why there really is not much Lutheran gospel in Romans chapter 2. There's a little, but, but not much. Because it's there to convince you that on your own, you're going to hell. And it's there to convince you that so that you will get to verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3. And you'll see that none of us are going to make it. So you'll look then at verse 21. I'm getting way ahead. This is next week. But verse 21 says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So this is where the Lutheran distinction between law and gospel is found by Dr. Martin Luther. It's in other books too, Galatians especially, we'll talk about it. But this is where he began to talk like this, that the law condemns and the gospel brings life. This whole section is a treatise on that, yeah? And for that reason, let's go ahead and define gospel and law in the Lutheran sense. Last week, we spent a bunch of time on Romans chapter 1 where he's very clear what he means when he says, my gospel. That's going to come up again today. My gospel. What does he mean? He means that the seed of David has risen from the dead. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The euangelion, the good angel story. That's the good message. The seed of David, the son of David, the heir to David's throne. He died, but he's not dead anymore. That changes everything. That's why he is the good shepherd, laying down his life for the sheep at the foot of the wolf who pierced his feet and his hands. He defeats that wolf, crushes his head. That's the good news. What's the law? The law is just a completely different thing. The law are is guiding principles for virtuous conduct. That sounds kind of funky to say it that way. It's the way the world was made to work. The way the world was made to work. That's the law. And you honestly can include gravity and electricity and any type of natural philosophy in the law, along with morality like murdering your neighbor. Totally not a good thing. Do it long enough, you're going to get murdered by your other neighbors. They're going to come back at you, right? The the law keeps itself in one regard. It curbs you in. You can't break it for too long without everything falling apart, which should tell us what's going on in our country right now. But it also then is not something by which you can save yourself. You cannot show that you have kept the law good enough to stop yourself from dying. 
That's Lutheran law and gospel. Romans chapter 2 is all Lutheran law. It's good though. It's not bad. It's good to remember your corporate sin. It's good to remember that you need a savior. And it's a very, very, very good thing to understand the world you live in and how it works. So from here, what I want to do this morning in our remaining time is move through some of the verses in chapter 2 to try to give you the big picture of what's going on. And we're going to start with chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Rather than go just straight through, we're going to look at more of an outline format. By the way, as I'm preaching through Romans, and we're looking at a different chapter every week, in this service, I'm generally going to preach this way. That is, I'm going to give you the big picture of the chapter and take you through an outline. In the late service, where I use a little bit more time, we're going to go verse by verse through the entire chapter. Now, you don't have to come to the late service to be able to get that. If you go to our website, sp815.org, later in the week, you can listen to that sermon right there. Or if you're one of those fancy newfangled people who like to podcast, just search for the podcast called Saved. Saved. It's just my sermons. They're all there. They show up pretty quickly. And you can get both sermons. You can re-listen. You can kind of let it feed you during the week. I highly encourage you to do that. Why? Well, because along with reading your Bible at home, which is like the absolute best thing you can do for us as a people. If you're all listening to the same feeding of truth together over the week at home, guess what that's going to do to you? It's going to unify you as a people. Do you know what the biggest threat is to America right now? Intentional disunification of our minds by a multitude of messages that want to divide us. So if you want to stay a strong Christian center, a city of hit on a hill, a, a light to those around us, having the same diet, not food, but word, is going to make a big difference. Yeah. So do consider checking out that later sermon, especially with your Bible open, maybe taking some notes at home. All right, so starting at chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, here you can see not only the use of the word law quite a few times, but again, I'm trying to emphasize he is talking to those who have the law. That is, to the Jews and to Jewish Christians who know what the Ten Commandments are. They know what the sacrifices are. They know who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are. And he's saying that those who don't have that, yes, they're going to be judged. But so also you who have it, you're going to be judged by it. Here's this kind of strange little bit that comes out of this. In some ways, the pagans are better off than the Jews if they're unbelievers. Because they don't have nearly as much to be held accountable for. All they got is whatever they figured out the law was by trying to understand nature. But when God comes to you and says, this is exactly how it's supposed to go, do it just like this, and then your heart doesn't do that, now that wrath is much higher. It's stored up with a lot more power for you there. Let's look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. 
Now, this is why we had to look at verse 19 in chapter 3. Will anyone be justified by the law? Paul says, no. But here he says, the doers of the law will be justified. So which one is it? Which one is it? And really, it's not a difference. There's no difference. The question is, who are the doers of the law? Who has not only heard God's word, but also kept it perfectly? And if you want to raise your hand and say, ooh, ooh, me, me, well, then you'll go into judgment day and you'll get exactly what you deserve. But don't miss this. There is one who has kept the law. There is one who did the law perfectly and he showed himself justified. How? Because he died and death couldn't contain him. So Paul's exactly right. The doers of the law will be justified and Jesus was justified by his works. He also was justified by his faith. As a human man, he had perfect faith. But let's just leave that tangent for a moment and see that the point here is Paul is saying, if you have heard what the law says to do, and you don't do it perfectly, then you are not justifiable in any way. Let me say justified differently. You have no excuse. To justify yourself is to make an excuse. And what he's saying is that, again, if you only have heard it, but haven't done it, you have no excuse. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, it's exactly what it says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Maybe you remember from last week, I said this whole section is about how we all are captured under corporate guilt. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so when he says, you, oh man, he's talking to everybody. He's talking to the human race. He's talking to Adam. And he says, we together, we have no excuse. Why? Because we judge. Now, does that mean it's wrong to say, that's right, and that's wrong. No, that's not wrong at all. That's not what he means by judgment here. Judge not, lest ye be judged. I know you've heard it before. I know it's a favorite thing unbelievers want to take from Jesus and then use to say, you Christians aren't allowed to talk or say Jesus is the Savior, because judge not, lest ye be judged. It's a complete fabrication. You can't, you can't take someone else's argument and use it as if it's your argument. If you don't believe there's a God, then what Jesus says doesn't matter. And you're not even allowed to interpret it. Because according to the Bible, you're such a fool, you can't see anything or know anything. You dwell in darkness. So you got it wrong. Jesus didn't mean never believe in truth. So let me translate that a little differently, and you'll get it right away. What does Jesus mean when he says, judge not, lest ye be judged? He means blame not, lest ye be blamed. Do you see the difference? Huh? Blame not lest ye be blamed. You, mankind, have no excuse since you're running around blaming everybody except yourself. And that's the point of Romans 2, is the Christian will learn to start blaming himself. Hmm? Because he will recognize that the very act of blaming others is the great sin. Because it says, I'm God. I get to decide who's good and who's evil. 
It appropriates to yourself the ability to be the judge. And none of us are the judge. Jesus is the judge. And while he was here, he even said, I'm not the judge. Moses will condemn you. Yeah. So again, put it in the category of blame. And then also when it says that you practice the very same things, kind of on the Pew Bible, you have to flip pack a page, but try to remember from last week, he did talk about how homosexuality is a chief example of how once you give yourself over to sinful passion, you will do things that are backwards, that are not natural. And how if you have two dogs and they're both boys, you won't have three dogs. But if you have two dogs and they're a boy and a girl, guess what? You'll have three and four and five dogs. That's natural, right? So he uses homosexuality as an example of what's obviously not the way it's made to work that your sinful passion will lead you into. But he doesn't mean to say that therefore only homosexuals are bad. And so when it says, you are a man who judge, you're without excuse because you do the same things. Well, what are the same things? Look at the list. It's not just homosexuality. It begins in, chapter, in verse 29. Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, slanderers. I'm just skipping ahead. Boastful, haughty, foolish, faithfulness, heartless, right? That's what he's talking about. You're without excuse. Not a single one of us gets to walk around and say, you know, I've never been envious. No one gets to do that. And so therefore you are without excuse when you go and you say that homosexual is a worse person than me. Does that mean homosexuality is okay? No, it will bring about its own punishment in itself as will your sin. And so our task is for all of us together to come to repentance, but without blaming everyone else. We come to repentance by owning our own sin and then confessing that Jesus is the king who took it away from us. We all acknowledge what the evil is. We all strive not to do the evil, but we don't hold ourselves up as if we're better just because we believe. That's the point again of chapter 2. Let's skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 4, where if you don't do that, here's what you're doing. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness? And forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So if you do experience a hunger and a passion for adulterous, sexually immoral behavior, which frankly, most people in life find that on some level, somewhere, and guys in particular, does that mean that you're supposed to act out on it? Because, well, judge not, lest he be judged? No, it means you're going to come to repentance because you know that those who practice such things deserve what comes of such things. And when you do things that are against nature, nature eventually fights back. Envy is a good example, too, in this way. Envy is its own punishment. You know what the punishment is for envy? Dissatisfaction. But that's what envy is. I am dissatisfied. I would, I'll tell be very, very frank. I would like a nice brand new Toyota pickup. Oh my goodness. When I see him driving around town, I'm like, oh, I want one so bad. Guess what the punishment is? I'm so unhappy. Huh? Sin and immorality are its own fruit and they bring about its own struggle. So if you go out and you go to college and you sleep with this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy, guess what the punishment is? You slept with all those guys. Man, that is going to just not feel good. 
And you're going to be so busy trying to tell yourself, oh, it feels good. I'm okay. I'm, 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 I'm a strong woman. That actually you'll be destroying your own soul, destroying your own emotions, unable to face who you really are and what you really believe. So you become a shadow, you become a shell. Uh, so, okay, okay. So the point here is that God's patience and mercy is not meant to keep us in our sin, but to bring us to where we see it. We call it what it is. We fight against it. And then we beg him to save us from it. Let's go to chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 here. I'm going to read these out loud. This is where he says that we all kind of know this, by the way. You don't really need the revelation of the law to know what the law is. For when Gentiles, that's anyone who's not a Jew, who do not have the law, that's the revealed Old Testament, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. I mean, every culture in the world has rules against murder. Everyone just kind of knows. And your kids, while, while they're really good at saying mine, mine about everything, if someone else takes what actually is theirs, they know right away someone stole. Right? So, so the law is written on our hearts. Um, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So it doesn't matter what you've been taught about what you're supposed to do. We all know what the real basic law is. And we know that because, as I said a moment ago about the girl at college, the conscience begins to accuse you. And at some point, you either listen to that accusation and repent, or you, you push it down. You make all these excuses for yourself. But, but this is where, it's kind of a throwaway thought, but it's a really, really valuable one. On the last day, on the day of judgment, you know who's going to send people to hell? Their own hearts. Because everything they knew all along, and they told themselves, ah, ah, don't worry, ah, it's fine, I'll be fine. And that heart's going to talk back and say, oh, no, no, no. You knew all along. Their own hearts will accuse them on that day, although some will have more excuse than those who had the full revelation of the law and all its explanation. All right? Now, don't miss in verse 16 that the day of judgment is a day of judgment by Jesus Christ, by the gospel. So, yes, the doers of the law will be justified, but there are no doers of the law. So there is another justification, and that is that, I haven't said it yet, he is risen. Hallelujah. The seed of David has destroyed the tomb. That is the way by which God plans to judge the world, and he's making that known to all people now. So no one has to stand there on that day and say, give me what I deserve. The amazing evil of mankind and our desire to blame everybody else is going to lead to many people standing there on that day saying, give me what I deserve. Let's look at verses 21 and 23 through 23. We kind of talked about this idea already. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. 
So the point here again is that boasting. What shall we boast in? Shall we boast in the fact that we know how marriage works while the rest of the world's completely confused about the matter at the moment? No, we shouldn't boast in that at all. We should boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has broken the grave. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Does that mean that marriage isn't marriage? No, marriage still is marriage. Does that mean you don't want to pursue? No, you still want to pursue marriage. It's like the best thing you can pursue as a young person. I've told this story before. I'll try to make it quick. I remember being at a youth event once, and I was supposed to talk about marriage to the kids, and I was supposed to do it with boys and girls separately. And I tried this thing with the boys. I said, boys, write down on a piece of paper your, your five biggest goals in life. And so they all did it, write down their goals. And I asked them, okay, so how many of you had have kids on there? Not a hand went up. Same with the girls. No one's hand went up. That's upside down. The best thing you can do in life is have a better next generation than this one. The best thing you can do, the best thing you can do is pass on what you know about who Jesus is. You can't take it with you. The cars, the toys, the houses, the clothes, the food, all of that's going to perish. You know what's not going to perish? Your baptized children who you raise in the faith. They're not going to perish. They'll be with you forever and ever and ever. It's the only thing in life that you can take with you. And we've just completely forgotten it. So, But do we boast in that? Is that how I know I'm a better person? I'm going to count off. I've got 10 kids. You've got seven kids. Wow, why'd you guys stop? You know, that's a problem. That's wrong. That's self-righteousness, right? And Paul's concern here is self-righteousness needs to be done away with while we lift up the natural truth that is, in fact, how we're all built to live and work together. The place where I think we Lutherans should be most condemned, by the way, in verses uh, 21 to 23, I mean, you're probably not out there actually stealing much these days. Maybe you are. I mean, trying to get that best deal off of the local market and whatever, I mean, that's, that's kind of you know, one up on your neighbor. But the bit about you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? That word for robbing temples is one word, and it, it doesn't mean like break in and steal the communion ware, okay? What it means is that you go in and think you're going to just kind of be there and get blessed. Do you treat church like it's just sort of a a thing that God kind of is going to pay you back for later. And and so you just go and come. Are you a hypocrite at church? Do you even care? It's kind of asking. Now, I want all of us to be like, oh, man, you know, that really accuses me. Good. It should because all of us don't. And that's what he wants us to see, that all of us don't. We have fallen short of the glory of God. So it's not that we're like, oh, we're all going to hell. Oh, God hates me. No, it's, oh, just don't think too highly of yourself now. Realize what a gift it is that you're here this morning, that God has called you by the gospel, enlightened you with his gifts, sanctified and kept you in the true faith, along with all the church. Yeehaw, hallelujah, he is risen. Alleluia. Look at verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. What a strange statement. If anything circumcision is, it is outward and physical. It is the removing of skin with the knife from the male, with lots of blood involved. It is clearly outward and physical. But Paul says, yeah, but that's not the point. The point isn't that you remove a little bit of skin. The point is what that meant. 
And think about this now. He goes to Abraham. God goes to Abraham. He says, I'm going to do this, do this to all your kids. The thing that makes your children needs to have blood in order to tell about what it's going to be someday. And so all the way down, mankind's most essential part needs to have something removed from it by the shedding of blood in order for the future to survive. And now go straight to the cross of Jesus and see how the centerpiece of mankind has to have our sin removed from it by the shedding of his blood. And you can see that circumcision was never meant to be just an outward sign, but a fulfilling prophecy of Jesus' own death and resurrection. Does that mean that Jesus didn't get circumcised? No, in fact, he did. And this is a key point too. Does that mean you don't need to be circumcised? Oh, you already are. Because when you're baptized into Jesus Christ, you're baptized into all of his keeping of the law, including all of the Passovers he kept, including all of the Pentecost days that he kept, including all those perfect rituals that he kept, including his circumcision on the eighth day. It's yours. But how is it yours? By the water? No, not by water only, but by water included with God's command and combined with his word so that your heart would believe it. That's the inward circumcision of faith. Yeah. Verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, by the spirit, not the letter. I could go 20 minutes on this. I'm not going to. I'm just going to ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read a few more verses that will open that up for you, and you can check them out this week and ponder them maybe. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is going to begin. I should have written that page down. It's going to begin on page 965. I'm going to read verses 4 through 9. And then we're going to jump to chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. This is all just about what does he mean, the Spirit versus the letter? What, what, what's that about? Okay, so chapter 3, beginning at verse 4 of 2 Corinthians. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, see how the letter is the Ten Commandments, the law? If the law came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So now we're back at law and gospel. The letter that kills, that's, that's the law. It's natural philosophy. It's the truth about the way the world works. It's what God says you ought to do. It's good, but it's going to kill you. The Spirit who's going to give you life, that's He is risen. Alleluia. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness, that's in Jesus, must far exceed it in glory. Let's look ahead to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, 
with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. More of that next week in Romans chapter 3. In the name 